Hi, back again and hoping you're all okay. Not much has changed on the health landscape that gives us a lot to cheer about, but we stick with the lockdown. I'm Claire English. Welcome to Ripples, where I've been thinking about some of the unintended consequences that emerge from big events or decisions. And this pandemic, it's proving, well, very testing for us, but also providing so much food for thought and also concern particularly for those who have cancer and are worried about disruptions and cancellations to their ongoing treatment. We still don't know exactly which NHS services are returning to so-called normal and the geographical picture is patchy. And yes, this is understandable amidst a health emergency, although we do have to think about the effect this lack of clarity is having on patients and their well-being. I'll be hearing from one a little later. But first, I thought I'd catch up with someone I knew from my time working with the team at Glasgow's Precision Oncology Laboratory at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Susie Cook is Head of Medical Genomics and Deputy Director at GPOL. She spent a good deal of her time creating a new cancer test, but that was before COVID appeared on the horizon. Now it's all hands to the pump to deal with the pandemic. I wondered how her working day had altered and how she felt about her switch in priorities. So the biggest impact, of course, is that we're all working from home and some of us can do that. So I have a hybrid team that has expertise in both bioinformatics and software development, but also in wet lab research and development and methodologies and service delivery. Um, and with everyone at home, the informatics team have adapted relatively easily. So they're used to just working at a computer. And as long as they can log into systems remotely, they can still carry on more or less as normal um, in the current situation. Uh, the more difficult side of things, of course, is the wet lab side, where people really need to be in a specialist laboratory environment um, for their role. So what we've been doing um, so far is switching to shift work. So um, a lot of the equipment has to be maintained. It needs to be washed. You know, we can't we can't just down tools and walk out the building for months. So we have two staff in observing social distancing, but just keeping everything ticking over and making sure that we're not doing any long term damage to really specialist infrastructure um, through this shutdown. And then the other thing that I've got the lab team doing that I'm not sure they'll thank me for is working on our quality management system. So making sure that all of our documentation all of our um, uh, operating procedures and everything is up to scratch, making sure that, you know, I's are dotted and T's are crossed so that when we can get back to work, there's nothing standing in our way. We're, we're optimally set up to just hit the ground running uh, and do nothing but experiments. But of course, um, trials are halted and obviously things are creeping back towards normal. We're told by government that they're trying to normalise things, but that'll be the sort of easier, not easier services, but the more basic services will come back first. Trials, how far off do you think we are um, resuming trials again? I imagine some trials will look to start recruiting patients again within a month or two. Um, trials for cancer patients, obviously a really critical um, service to have available. Um, and I, I do think that there's a lot of motivation within the oncology community as well as within patients to make sure that we do as much as we can, even in the present circumstances, um, to get those reopened and to make sure that, that patients can access those systems. 
So basically, you've got stuff that you can still be working on that's come from the trial material that you gathered before the lockdown, before everything changed? Absolutely. So we're not recruiting new patients, but samples from existing patients are still working their way through the system. And particularly what we have with this kind of breathing space, if you want to look for the silver lining or mm, put the positive yeah. spin on it, is a chance to go through all of that data, to learn from that data, to maybe think of some new R&D ideas or some new trial designs, um, explore things that we don't normally have the, the kind of luxury to be able to explore because we're so busy with our day-to-day uh, delivery. Do you think it's going to change the way you work when you go back? Because yes, admittedly, we've all been forced into having a lot more time to spend thinking and ruminating. But can any of this learning be carried forwards into what you do on a day-to-day basis? Because it can be pretty hectic in the lab. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly going to have an impact on our kind of immediate style of working. So one thing we want to do is make sure that the, the lab can get back as soon as the government allows us to get back to work. And what that will probably involve, uh, you know, until we have a vaccine um, and until COVID goes away or whatever happens to it, we'll be making sure that our informatics team stay at home where they can still do their jobs. But we're already discussing things like giving the informatics office to the sequencing team so that they can maintain social distancing because they'll effectively have double the physical space at work to spread themselves around in. So um, I think our working styles will change permanently we've we've done a few staff surveys about how people have found this whole experience and what they want um, when they do get back to work and people have been really positive about home working uh, as as the kind of team manager I can I can say hands on heart that productivity has not suffered while we've been working from home the team have done an amazing job in staying motivated and engaged under difficult circumstances and you know still giving measurable outputs and moving things forwards um, in spite of everything that's going on. It would get tricky, wouldn't it, if there was uh, another sort of bite back with COVID and, you know, we're not past peak because then that would put everything else into abeyance. But at the moment, everyone, everything looks like it's going in the right direction, that normal-ish service will be resumed in a matter of weeks. I'm just thinking from the perspective of cancer patients waiting to move on with their trials and their lives and, and take some decisions. Yeah, so I'm really optimistic that we will get those things back open and up and running soon. And I'm also um, convinced at the moment that this length of shutdown hasn't done any permanent damage. You know, we had enough of a backlog of work to keep busy. We've worked through that. We're in a great position to start again. If the lockdown was longer, it would start to cause kind of a systemic problem with, with outputs, basically. Well, tell us a little bit about what you've had to do with the COVID uh, pandemic, because are you using any of the learning from the stuff that you do in genomics for cancer to apply to COVID learning and helping various agencies out with their work? So we've taken an approach that uh, everyone in the local area who's working on COVID, and there are multiple different initiatives, both on the research, um, the testing and the frontline services Um, elements. All of those people know who we are, they know where we are. If they want help, they can uh, and do get in touch with us. So we've had discussions with all of those about what we could do, um, either with our capacity, with loaning the machines or staff, or just advising on things like um, software and and information management, um, quality management. Um, So we we are pitching in when we're asked, but we're otherwise trying to stay out of their way and let the experts do their jobs. 
obviously your area of specialty is cancer and you have created the Glasgow Cancer Test and we're talking about testing for COVID. Testing is a word that crops up again and again and again at the moment within the the context of the, the, the COVID outbreak. Tell us a little bit about the Glasgow Cancer Test and your hopes for that because, well, where are we with it? So you're right, testing is absolutely key. If we don't test a disease, then we're just guessing when we treat it. We don't actually know what it is, we don't understand it. Uh, we just learn by trial and error what might or might not work. And that's a particular problem for cancer where its behavior is so diverse, every person is different and every cancer is different, that we're really bad at guessing the right treatment. So we need tests that direct us to give the right treatment to the right patient. And what the Glasgow Cancer Test is, is a genomic profiling approach. It's, it's not really just one test, it's a multiplex test. So it tests everything you could need to know about a cancer genome, but all at the same time. So it gives you that full range of information up front, which allows you to make kind of personalised or precision decisions for each patient. But there are genomics tests and genomics tests. So why is this different from, for example, the, the big English genomics one that we hear a lot about? So there are different ways of delivering genomics tests. So one way and what is kind of commonly used in the health system at the moment is lots of single tests. So if you need to know about five different genes for someone's cancer, you test, you do five different tests, one for each gene. What the current state of the art and the scientific knowledge shows is that there are around 200 types of cancer. There are around 600 genomic features um, that are relevant to cancer. So if you take an approach of saying for this cancer type, we want to run this test, for this cancer type, we want to do this other test, the number of kind of permutations, combinations of what you need to run is enormous. So we're taking the approach of let's just test every cancer for everything, um, get, get that kind of definitive profile, um, and then your testing is done, you can focus on treating the patient. So this sounds, I know a little bit about it, but it sounds like it's quite different from other genomics tests, but there not there a problem? There are so many competing for space and attention. Uh, so I'm just trying to, again, get to the USP of what you think is completely different about this one. So one of the key things that we focused on is the diversity of different genomic changes that happen in a cancer. So what we hear a lot about are mutations, and these are very small changes in a cancer genome. But the cancer's DNA changes in ways that change the amount of DNA in a cancer cell. They change the structure of the DNA in a cancer cell. And all of these things are kind of equally important in determining the cancer's behavior. So our test doesn't focus on a particular type of change. Um, it focuses on being able to pick up everything. I think the other key difference around our test is a lot of the genomic tests that are available that are similarly or, you know, are complex or broad or multiplex tests um, tend to be commercial providers. So they tend to have a hefty price tag. You tend to send away a patient sample and the company retains the patient's data as part of the service that they provide. The test that we've generated is purely a kind of reagent. So it's an enabler, which allows any lab to offer that test. So that would include allowing NHS labs to offer that test at kind of cost price rather than adding on that commercial markup. So we're talking about what sort of values are we talking about in terms of cost compared to thousands? Are we still talking thousands? We're we talking hundreds? So it would cost a couple of hundred pounds for a lab to deliver this test, you know, in an existing lab 
to, to take this off the shelf uh, and offer it uh, straight away. If you go to a commercial company for a test, you, you are talking in the thousands. Dr Susie Cook, Deputy Director of Glasgow Precision Oncology Laboratory, and we'll hopefully hear more from her in the coming weeks. The research, the innovation goes on. Good. It's at a different pace for now, but hopefully that won't last too much longer. It's a hard path with many hurdles, but there's a tangible sense of urgency and impatience from Susie to get on with things. And by the way, if you're interested in what she had to say about the Glasgow cancer test and you'd like to hear and see Susie explain it for herself, head to my Facebook page where you can find links to a couple of little films. They'll give you a lot more context and detail. From scientist to patient, the very people Dr. Susie's focusing on helping. Okay, let's go. Yeah, so my my professional title, if you like, um, is Dr. Georgina Morgan, and I um, am a qualified GP, and I've been working in general practice. I fully qualified in 2004, but I've been working in and around general practice since 2000, um, and only finished last autumn. And that's when the doctor became a patient. Georgina started to experience some abdominal symptoms that didn't quite match her IBS experience, so she had things checked out. The diagnosis was shocking. She had a very rare cancer, cancer of the appendix, and it was stage four. Her journey from diagnosis up to now is absolutely incredible, and I didn't want to pass up on letting you hear that backstory. So I think I've come up with a solution which I'll explain a bit later. For now, let's rejoin the video chat with Georgina where we started to focus on the COVID pandemic. We talked about the impact of lockdown, the inevitable shielding for cancer patients and the effect on her family and her life, plus the treatment options she was able to access given the current crisis. Yeah, so I'm, I feel really lucky that I'm not on chemotherapy. And I was given the option back in January to go back, go on second line chemotherapy if I really wanted to. And although my oncologist was saying, you don't have to, he was saying it's there as an option and you're bright enough and sensible enough to weigh up the option. So it's there if you want it, Georgina, but he, we, we, we always use the standard test um, that, you know, what would he recommend for a member of his family? And he was saying to me quite clearly, I wouldn't recommend this for you at this point, Georgina. And I inherently trust my oncologist. So I was happy with that decision. And we left it with a plan that actually mid-April, I would have my three-month scan because I'd had my last scan in January. And at the moment, I'm on a three-monthly sort of scanning regime. So I was due a scan and actually that COVID, that sort of COVID's not bad out. So I would, I haven't had my scan. Um, and we, I again had a conversation with my oncologist to weigh up the pros and cons of, of doing that. But obviously going into hospital to have a scan comes with the risk of potentially contracting COVID, despite the fact that I I do go to hospital for other things like blood tests and my I've got a porter cath in my chest, have that flushed every month but I wear a mask and I wear gloves and we just felt that the risks outweighed the benefits of going ahead with my scan um, so we've just postponed that and I'll probably have another conversation with him in a couple of weeks time to say right where are we at now and I'm well aware that hospitals have now developed COVID free or COVID light pathways in order to um, you know be able to get back to normal um, routine care for cancer patients so I'll hopefully be able to slip in 
and then have a scan at some point and find out what's going on. So yeah, so COVID fortunately hasn't had a massive impact on my treatment. And I feel really lucky for that because I'm well aware within the cancer community of lots of people having, you know, potentially life-saving surgeries and chemotherapy and radiotherapy deferred um, or postponed. Um, and also having to make difficult decisions about whether to start or, or discontinue treatment because of COVID. Because fundamentally at the moment to most cancer patients, particularly those on treatment, um, COVID-19 is a greater risk than, than not having treatment. Yeah. But if, if you don't have treatment, obviously there's collateral damage and consequences to that. Do you feel so that, I mean, you have, for once you've been lucky because you've had a heck of a run of bad luck, but for once it's been fortuitous for you. But as a doctor and as a patient, you're looking at people that are collateral damage and they, they've they've been basically told you're not as important or, you know, you're, you're not as valued in terms of saving lives as somebody that's got COVID. And I know that's a very reductionist way of putting it, but that's how it must seem. Yeah. And that's how a lot of people do feel. They don't feel, they, they feel less important in the debate and, you know, and that's a very emotive response. And, and I completely understand that, but I equally understand the pressure if I put my doctor hat on. I understand the pressure that the people who are running the services, you know, what's in front of you, you have to deal with first. So if you're overwhelmed with people with breathing difficulties requiring ITU support because of COVID-19, you can't defer their treatment because they're there and in your face and need need dealing with Um and you've only got X amount of resources in order to deploy. So you have to make these really difficult decisions. And I've got friends and colleagues who are working in the front line who have found this incredibly difficult to do. And there's been lots of guidance sent out about how to decide who ought to continue with treatment or who ought to defer or postpone or even not have treatment because of COVID-19. And, and the two overriding principles are is it safe for people to continue treatment and is the resource available to support them to have the treatment that they need so I think one of the examples that may have been covered in the press was um there's a um a patient there's a lady who I know via social media who has got stage four bowel cancer and she's got lung metastases and she was literally due the week that COVID hit to go in to have those lung metastases cut out and she's had that done before and then had a long long period of time disease free and then one had popped back up and they were just going to cut it out and hopefully put her back to being disease free and this is not curative treatment but it's you know life extending and life prolonging and she had hers cancelled with no date for an obvious um, being rebooked to have the surgery. And she knows that in that time, the cancer might grow, the metastasis might grow significantly, and then she won't be able to have the surgery and that she'll miss her opportunity to have that life-prolonging, life-saving treatment. And she's got young children and I think she's actually younger than me. And that's an incredibly difficult situation to be in. And she completely understands the situation she completely understands the limited resources she understands the risk of having lung surgery and then catching COVID-19 whilst in hospital and she would need ITU support so it would be impossible to put her into a, 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 
an ITU COVID-free environment potentially. So she understands all of that, but it doesn't mean that she's not cross about it and upset about it. God, her um, life's in the balance again, and it's nothing she can do about it, external circumstances. Yeah. But uh, let me ask you, I mean, again, it, it's slightly political, but it's about, they they did war game uh, a pandemic or an epidemic coming to this country. There, there were recommendations and still it doesn't look like many people kind of took up some action after those recommendations were made. It was almost looked at as if it's unlikely to happen. Uh, we'll deal with it because we can definitely deal with it. But now we can see that actually lots of things could have been done differently. And you wonder about, you know, <laughs> the decision to, to basically say, right, we're, it took ages, didn't it, to sort of get the idea of the cancer hubs up. And I'm not even sure how much use that's been or how much of a dent that's made in treatments uh, to giving people that have got cancer? Yeah, the cancer hubs, I mean, I was on a call with NHS England last week on behalf of the charity, and I heard that the majority of the cancer hubs, I think 16 out of 21, were up, fully functioning and working. Um, but the cancer hubs are, for example, for my cancer, they, they, they couldn't operate in some areas, there might be a cancer hub. So at the Christie, it may be that they're able to, because the Christie is a cancer hub, may be able to continue to provide the peritoneal surgery, the major surgery that's required for, for my cancer. But the cancer hubs that exist in other parts of the country, again, might not be able to deliver the complex surgery that involves, say, the liver and gallbladders and pancreatic surgery. Um, so it's it's relatively easy to pick up and move some cancer surgery that is less um, invasive and doesn't require significant ITU support. But for other more complex and rarer cancers, um, you know, that's difficult to do. So I think there's a huge variety across the cancer hubs in terms of how effective they're being and what kind of numbers they're churning through. I get the impression that Manchester's doing really well and I get the impression that the Royal Mars is doing really well. But these were existing geographical entities that worked outside of other big hospital trusts where there was an A&E department and therefore are easier to isolate and make COVID free. So it's much harder in, in smaller hospitals where you've got your oncology sitting next door to your accident and emergency department. Mm. So it, the, the, the NHS isn't the same everywhere. It's huge. There's huge variety um, and there's huge variety in spread of specialism as well. So I think you then chuck COVID in, in on top of that and that just highlights the difficulties. Um, yeah, and yeah, we're, we're away through the yeah, the pandemic or epidemic now and there has been a very clear message coming out in the last week or so on the cancer calls with NHSE that I've been involved in that actually within six, six weeks they want the routine and urgent cancer work to be getting back to where it was within six weeks time and back to hitting the targets um, and there's a big acknowledgement that there's been a massive behaviour change in, the, in um, patients because we've seen this 75% drop off mm. in people presenting with red, what are called red flag symptoms, suggestive yeah. of cancers. So um, that's been a really big worry because we know that they're, they're still there. They're still sitting out 
in society, there are people still there with those symptoms. And what you're potentially doing is storing up a tsunami of work that's yet to come. Mm. So it's about factoring in all the work that has been deferred and postponed and getting that restarted and then actually getting the public to come forward with their symptoms because some of them have taken the stay at home message too much to heart and don't want to bother anybody or are too frightened of catching COVID if they come forward with symptoms. And you've got to get all those wheels turning again to get things up and running. It's but a, yeah, I think there's lots of lessons to learn, which is what your question was. It's like, you know, did we not see this coming? And and I genuinely don't think we saw it coming in the with the gravity and the numbers. Um, even I, I have heard that there was lots of, as you say, forecasting done that this could happen at some point. Um how do you make how do you make such provision? And build it into a system if it then never happens, because then people will say that's a waste. Yes, it's a very difficult political balance and a budgetary balance as well. But I guess it's about the message it sends out to people with rare or advanced cancer, which is, well, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because you're going to get pushed to the side. Basically, you know, you are going to we're going to make decisions about rationing the health service. And I know that a lot of people find Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, quite controversial. He's been tweeting and he himself has uh, had cancer. And uh, he's saying the rationing's begun and, you know, huge concerns on the equity and ethics of selection, which patients get treated and who don't. That's what you've just been saying. You know, your colleagues and friends are having to make wisdom of Solomon type decisions that won't be fair. And you just wonder... Was any of that avoidable? I mean, what, what do you It's do? really, really difficult, isn't it? And I think it'll be really interesting to go back and dissect it and work out what lessons could have been learned that could have averted some of this. And how many and people think- have died of cancer? We're talking, what, 18,000 possibly in amidst yeah. the, co- the COVID figures. And yeah. that phrase, and we, we talked about this when we were chatting about having this conversation recorded, underlying causes that very loaded phrase that seems to really upset and offend a lot of cancer patients yeah people die of underlying causes yeah and we don't have i haven't seen any good statistics that actually show the number of covid19 deaths in patients with a diagnosis um, of any disease and and obviously cancer being a big one but it is it's this potentially unquantified collateral damage isn't it that's coming along and that's going to be made up of a combination of people who have had treatment deferred or have contracted covid whilst on treatment um uh, you know or who haven't come forward and are therefore going to get a late stage diagnosis and therefore do poorly and make up part of this 18,000 potential extra cancer deaths by the end of the year harsh realities to face up to with those stats. Our conversation continued and we started to explore how we could learn from this pandemic, the positives to come from getting things wrong. This is Georgina's take. I think one of the positives that might come out of this, as you say, there's this big ethical debate about who who's getting treatment and who's not. And there was a lot of controversy about the, the, the sort of triage categorization of patients who should or should not continue or start treatment is that actually there is a little bit of over treatment within medicine I think and I saw this as a doctor I think sometimes we over medicalize things and we do over treat and sometimes I that 
I believe that comes from a good place. That comes from a place of wanting to do something rather than nothing. But actually doing nothing sometimes is a better outcome for the patient. And this is tied up in the concept of realistic medicine. And that was something when I was working that I was really passionate about. And, and GPs do this inherently day in, day out. They take a very what's called realistic approach to practicing healthcare. And, and I think realistic medicine, I believe in realistic medicine. And that's about patients being fully informed in the options that they've got with respect to their treatment and choosing what's right for them and choosing not to have treatment, even if that could end up in a worse outcome for them, to put it simplistically. And I actually think maybe one of the positive things that might come out of this issue around COVID and cancer is it's made people stop and think about what is actually right for the patient. And I understand that the driver is often about rationing and I, I'm always keen to have a conversation about rationing and I think it's better to have an open and honest explicit conversation about rationing rather than doing it implicitly which I, I just I just I doesn't sit comfortably with me to implicitly ration services so let's have this honest open debate about explicit explicit rationing and what we can and we can't do within the NHS but let's get the patients on board and on side with this to have their realistic input into this so that they're making informed decisions. Because sometimes I think patients aren't given that option in oncology. And there is this, we must do something approach and we must maintain life at all costs. And we, we fail and we don't acknowledge having conversations about quality of life. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can go into my oncology treatment having this knowledge and knowing that because of where I come from as a doctor. But I don't always think, and I've seen it sometimes with my patients, I don't think they're always given all the information to make the right decision for them. Do you think there's still a sort of paternalistic thing going on in medicine? that It's completely outdated now and we start we have to start treating people as adults and give them responsibility and allow them to decide if they want to try something or not, that's their risk. That's their yeah. decision. So I'm talking about going on trials, everything. Uh, I know that will be very uncomfortable as a conversation for the, the medical and scientific fraternity. And you don't want to do any harm. But actually, if it's somebody's life, it's their life to decide how it yeah. gets treated. You can give them the facts. But, you, you know, by cutting off options to them, is that treating them in a grown up way? Yeah, and it's it's about seeing your it's about the patients and the doctors collaborating together. It's about being it's about co-production of healthcare, isn't it? It's about them sitting together and making that decision. And there are some doctors that are really skilled at this, and I worked really hard to be one of those doctors. And there's always the option to do nothing there's always the option to not pursue a treatment course, even if that feels utterly mad. Um, and when I was doing GP training and I was working with GP trainees and I would, we would have these conversations and they just couldn't get their head around the fact that someone wouldn't want a treatment that they felt was obvious to have. And I just said, and I always used to use the analogy and I'd say to them, well, what car do you drive? And they'd say, I drive a, um, a Volkswagen Golf, classic GP car or, or whatever. And I said, well, why don't you drive Volvo? And they said, well, why, why would I drive a Vol Volvo? And I said, well, Volvo have got the safest um, record in, in car crashes. You know, they've got the best safety profile out there of any car on the market. So obviously, you, therefore, you'd buy a Volvo, wouldn't you? So why haven't you bought a Volvo? 
And they'd say, but I don't like Volvo. I want to drive a Golf. And I say, well, that's why your patient doesn't want to take your advice and follow what the guidelines say is the right decision. And 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 that's really interesting. But I, I know a lot of I know a lot of doctors would like to to consult in this way and be collaborative, but it takes some really good communication skills. And it takes bravery as well, because this is not the orthodox way of doing it. What's going to make them change? What are we going to do about this? Because I'm I'm screaming actually with frustration because so many people are telling me the same thing. What's going to change? It takes that you have to want to be a doctor that works in that way, I think. And you have to have the communication skills and you have to be prepared to have some difficult conversations and some really honest conversations, because that's where that's where these conversations can take you. And I've got friends who work in oncology who have told me that those conversations take a lot longer. They take a lot more time than just saying, well, this is a treatment option. You could have this or you could have A or you could have B. Um, what do you think? And the, and often the patient will say, well, what do you think, doctor? And they'll go, well, well, let's go with treatment A and see how we get on with that. Rather than, but there is good research equally that says if you take, if you take a collaborative approach to communicating, and there's something classically called um, the Cambridge Calgary communication um, skills, um, consultation skills and consultation style, if you take that collaborative style with patients, that actually it can be more efficient ultimately and you take them down that path and you come to the decision together at the end. Because you're not then but, having to follow up meetings or, or you know, you're, you're cutting out a lot of hassle in the future, but it does require you to be very brave and very confident about how the tone, the, the, the body language. So yeah. that's a big ask. Do we then have to start looking at who we are recruiting to become doctors? Are they clever people? Because of course they're clever people. But are they people people that can have conversations or can we train them to be people people? I think think the majority of people who go into medicine go into medicine because they want to make a difference and they want to help people and they ultimately want to make people feel better or better at what they do. Um, And I think it's a trainable skill and i think the research shows that it's a it's a it's a it's, you can learn it and it's a trainable skill you have to want to do it you have to have the desire to consult in that way and it's an attitudinal shift within some doctors to do it um and then if you equip them with the skills they can they can then roll with it it's a, in scotland actually the realistic medicine agenda has been huge and there's been some you know some big work done in Scotland with the health boards to to bring this in and it's got benefits for everybody it's got benefits across the system in terms of you know we talk about saving money all the time in the NHS but it's about using the resources you've got efficiently isn't it and it you know it's been shown to produce savings it's produced better outcomes for patients is produce better quality of life and happier working conditions for doctors because ultimately if you're working alongside your patient even if the outcome is you know say clinically worse but it's what the patient wants to happen and that 95 year old isn't going into hospital um with a with a urine infection and then picking up another infection on the ward and coming home you know deconditioned after three weeks stay and actually if they're happy to take the risk and stay at home and have community support in and they've been a a big part of that conversation and you've listened when they said doctor i really don't want to go to hospital today and you've worked with that 
then ultimately, you know, everybody's going to be happy at, at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think I think I hope that COVID-19 has perhaps started some of those realistic conversations. Um, but I equally don't want those realistic conversations to then be driven by rationing. Mm. So about staying realistic for the right reasons and not to fit an agenda of lack of resources and implicit rationing. That's a big worry though, isn't it? Because before COVID came along, NHS is on its knees because we're just expecting so much of it. How how does that get reframed in the public consciousness as well? We've seen, you know, admittedly people that should have been going to hospital not going because of COVID, but now we've also seen that people don't rush to A&E anymore. Can that culture sort of be changed as well, that we expect less on some levels with the NHS and for other ways to be treated, but we're realistic about what we can expect in terms of how much resource there is? We've never... You know, who thought, if you said to us in January, who would have thought we would have ever had to start a campaign within the NHS, which has been named Help Us to Help You, which was basically informing the public that general practice and A&E were still open for business and that it was safe to attend and that if you have a problem you can come forward. Now, we've always encouraged people with cancer symptoms to come. There's been, you know, there's massive public health campaigns about that. There's nothing new in that. But who would have thought we'd have seen a drop off in things like strokes and heart attacks and sepsis and other, you know, life-threatening situations where people just were not dialing 999 and asking for help? Who would have thought that we'd ever get to a situation where we're hitting the A&E targets because the footfall through A&E has dropped off significantly? Equally, we've seen a dramatic drop in serious and significant conditions seeking help via A&E or general practice, which prompted the campaign last week that was basically the helpers to help you were, you know, NHS open for business. And that's, I can't, I could never have imagined that that would ever have happened, but it has, because the stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS message has almost done too good a job. It's, it's utterly bizarre, isn't it? But it equally shows you how how the public can respond in different circumstances in an extreme way that nobody could ever imagine. So you have to be so careful with what messages you give out. Um, but this is such an opportunity as well, isn't it? It's a terrible, terrible curse. And so many people have suffered and lost loved ones. And, and people that have got cancer are incredibly worried and frustrated and, and feeling quite hopeless in some cases. But, but, but there is also the upside of this is it's highlighting things we never really saw magnified before. And then we can do something to address it. But again, I come back to that thing. Is there a will? Who's going to drive that? <laughs> <laughs> Will it be more down to patient groups? I'm thinking it must be. We must start to give patients a bit more clout to go in there and, and argue the case for themselves as well. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what we're like generally as a society when we come out the other side of, of COVID-19. But it'd be really interesting to see where the NHS is because, you know, I, I, mean, I haven't practised now within the NHS since my diagnosis in August 2018. So I, I am cautious when I talk about how I perceive it operating at the moment because I'm not there and I'm not at the front line anymore. But I have seen immense transformation of services and the way that services are delivered. And I've seen a dramatic change in the way that patients are behaving when they're accessing and using that service. And I, 
And I think some of the barriers to all those changes that have been made have fallen away because we've got a pandemic and suddenly the drivers for change are incredible. But it'd be really interesting to see where we are at the end of this and how much we go back to where we were and how many of those barriers reappear. And it'll be really interesting to see how long this national love and support for the NHS lasts because normally it's the kicking boy of the press and the media and you know we're clapping you know clapping for carers and we're you know help the heroes type attitude towards and thank the heroes in the NHS but it's it'll be really interesting to see how long that lasts and and you know and if it doesn't why it doesn't so it's it yeah it'll be interesting to see where we are at the end of all of this and I would love to think that the pace of I think the pace of change you can't maintain it's unsustainable at the moment and I know a lot of a lot of friends who are absolutely exhausted with the pace of change at the moment but so much has been achieved and I really hope that that just stays in terms of transforming service delivery um, and working together the working togetherness that's that's come out of this and the novel ways of accessing care via telephone and video and all that kind of thing. I really hope some of that stays because that's much more patient focused in many respects. You know, what we, just the footfall throughout patients must have dropped off significantly in this period of time, but equally people are still getting routine care. So I'm still seeing my clinical psychologist. I'm just doing it via an online um, consultation tool, a bit like Zoom or a bit like it's called... Um, no, can't remember what it's called. Consult anywhere, I think it's called. Consult anywhere. So I'm doing that, and and I don't have to, you know, I don't have to get in the car, I don't have to drive, I don't have to park at the hospital. Brilliant, to... brilliant. <laughs> Why didn't they think of it before? Oh, because it's been trialed and in other countries use it. Why did we not think of this using this before? Ah. No. Well, and uh, and it's and it, all those resistance and all those barriers to doing that before, because lots of people have thought for a long time it's a really good idea, but they all disappeared once it became the only option. So it's fascinating, isn't it, when the barriers of change start to fall away um, and the driver is a need rather than a want. Dr Georgina Morgan, who was very generous with her time. And I wish there had been more time to include her backstory in this podcast, the treatments, the surgery she's endured since 2018. What a roller coaster. So I've added a link, I think that might solve things, uh, to the initial part of our chat. And it's on my Facebook page. You click on the link to allow you to hear what Georgina's gone through. What a journey. Her resilience is incredible. She's a mother of two, a wife. She's talking about the ripple effects of her illness, that they radiate to all aspects of her household in lockdown. She's also looking at this as a former GP and someone who's interested in patients' rights as well. So fantastic perspective from her. You've been listening to Ripples with Claire English. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. I can't tell you which direction we're off in, but there is plenty to say about the ripple effects of the pandemic on cancer patients. Please do check out the links on my Facebook page for additional content for the two docs, Dr Susie and Dr Georgina. Big thanks to both. Much appreciated. And if you have a specific angle or someone you think I should hear from, get in touch via my Facebook page. Do keep listening on the podcast platform of your choice. Press subscribe for free listening. I'm still checking out that voice message option via your browser or your app where you listen to Ripples. You click a link in the show notes and apparently that 
that takes you to the Anchor app page. You leave a short message, you'll have to log in or sign up to contribute. It's free, no strings. It's just a way of reaching me. It also means I could use your comments in future editions. I'll be back in about a week with a new Ripples podcast, but for now, stay safe. Thanks for your time.